It got started when uh, my brother would take me out to the ocean as a kid. He's the one who taught me how to paddle out and how to spot waves. I would say 80% of surfing isn't actually riding. It's just about being in the water and it's about understanding the ocean. Basically, you're just looking, watching the ocean where the energy is forming. You'll spend your first few minutes just watching how it comes in, and how it builds, and where it builds, and why. And the more you understand that, the more chance you have of actually catching a wave and getting the chance to ride it. There's really no predictability in the water other than that it's consistently unpredictable. The waves, they don't, they don't come one at a time whenever you're ready. They come in sets and each one is different. And in order to learn how to ride, you have to learn how to adapt. Surfing's a constant lesson in improvisation. Everything changes from the wind to the temperature. Your feet rarely land in the same place in the board every time. As surfers, we don't create the waves. We, we ride what we're given. You can't just paddle out and catch any wave. You kind of have to know what you're looking for. Some of the guys who are the best at doing that, they not only know how to ride their board, but they know the ocean. They know the swells, the tide charts. They can read it. The best part about surfing is that every day it's completely different, and that's kind of the beauty in it. You just have to soak up the experience and you learn something every time. Some of you might know Daryl. Uh, some of you don't recognize him there, but he plays music up on our stage. Sometimes he'll wear a little bow tie, and so you might, you know, might jog your memory. But we've been showing these videos, and last week we showed a musician, and I was just so jealous because... I'm not a good musician. I was, I'm like one of those musicians that wishes he could play, but I can't really play good enough. And I've actually been surfing a couple times. I don't know if you could call it surfing. It was more like sitting there watching other people surf and struggling to paddle. I found out later on, my buddy took me surfing, great surfer, surfed his whole life. He gave me his old board, which was too small for me. And so basically it was dragging under the water the whole time. So I wasn't doing a good job of improv improvising that day. But hey, listen, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Sean. If this is your first time here, we're really glad that you're here. I know it takes a lot of courage to walk into a church for the first time. I remember what that was like for me. And so we're glad that you're here. And we're in a series right now. And what's it called? Improvise. Exactly right. And really the whole idea is that following Jesus, being in a relationship with God, involves improvising improvising with the Holy Spirit. And it's sort of like a musician or a surfer that has become so skilled at their craft and they've practiced over and over and over again that they're actually freed up. A musician is freed up to create and play new melodies and new music. The surfer learns how to identify and he knows how the waves work and how the ocean works. And they get the thrill of riding a wave, the danger and the joy of riding a wave in. And we believe that part of walking with God is learning the song of the scriptures and learning the story of the scriptures and living that out so that we can be freed up in our lives to actually improvise with the Spirit of God and what He's doing in us and through us at Lakeside Church and beyond. And so what we're doing is we're just going back to the beginning. We're going back to the earliest part of Christianity recorded in the Bible in the book of Acts. It's the earliest account that we have. And we're just asking the question, how did they do it? 
How did those first Christians walk with God in such a way that they were able to, that they were able to improvise in their time? And we want to learn from them. We want to learn the skills from them. And so we're encouraging everybody to just read through the book of Acts. 28 chapters in 28 days. It's called the Big Read Through Acts. Some of you got a bookmark on your way in last week. If you didn't, then on your way out, you can grab one. You can also follow along on Facebook. And there's no way that we're able to go through the whole book of Acts in five weekends. And so what we're doing is we're trying to land on some key passages from the book, uh, areas where we can learn a little something of the rhythm of the early church. And one of the things that we're finding out, we found out last week that it's actually possible. It's actually possible to improvise with the Spirit of God as the early Christians did. And some of you will be working at that, and I want to encourage you to keep on trying because it doesn't just happen by accident. We know that improvising in any area of life is really the result of hundreds, sometimes thousands of decisions made over and over and over again so that things that are difficult, things that are hard for us at first actually become second nature things when we need them the most. That's what we saw happen back in 2009. If you were following the news at all back then, on January 15th, we saw Maybe a miracle happened. I don't know. People called it a miracle. I think the full explanation of the story is even more fascinating and more exciting. It's about Flight 1549, a U.S. Airways flight that took off from New York, headed towards Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was captained by Chesley B. Sullenberger III, known as Sully Sullenberger. And he knew about two minutes into his flight that this flight was in trouble. He smelled cooked goose, which is a good smell on Christmas morning, but not so good when you're on an airplane two minutes into the flight. They ran into a whole flock of Canadian geese, and both engines were rendered useless. And so he radioed the tower, and they thought, well, maybe we can turn the plane around and land back at the airport, or maybe we can go to another airport. But he realized quickly that this was going to be impossible, and not only would he endanger everybody's life on board, but they would probably crash the plane in a highly populated area. And so Captain Solenberger decided to improvise. What he did is he looked out the left side of the window and he saw the Hudson River. And so he told the tower that he was going to land on the river. And naturally what they thought was that he would land and all life would be lost because it had only been done twice before in aviation history, an airliner landing safely on the water. Just a month before that, An Ethiopian airliner tried to land in the ocean, and it was disastrous. And so they had to do a whole bunch of things, uh, the pilot and the co-pilot, in a short period of time if they were going to avoid the same disaster. And so in about two minutes, here's what they had to do. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide at the right speed for as long as possible. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain the speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. And they had to activate the ditch system, which seals the vents and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. And then most important, they had to glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it could come around facing south, going with the flow of the river And having no engine power, they had to do all of this on battery-operated power systems and the emergency generator. 
And then they had to straighten the plane out, and they had to get the tilt of the nose down a little bit, but not too far down. And then they had to get it back up a little bit, but not too far up. And they had to go the perfect speed, not too fast, not too slow. And then they had to land completely even on the water. And amazingly enough, he did it. And he saved the lives of all 155 passengers on board and the 13 babies that have since been born to those passengers that were on board. And they celebrate that today. And whenever he talks about this, he mentions two things. One is that it was a team effort. Everybody on the crew was at the right place at the right time doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. He could hear as he was bringing that plane around and as they were coming towards the water, he could hear the flight attendants shouting over and over instructions to the passengers. Everybody was well-trained, knew what they were supposed to do. But the other thing he said is that he was prepared. In fact, he had spent 30 years preparing for that moment. He was into flight safety, he taught flight safety, and he was actually a gliding instructor. And so Sully Solenberger actually made the thousands of small decisions, some of them difficult decisions, things he had to learn over and over and over again so that things that were difficult became second nature things when he needed them the most. Let me ask you this morning, what do you need the most in life right now? I mean, if you could improvise with the Spirit of God, how would you do that in your life right now? You're not landing a plane on the Hudson River, but you have challenging situations that you're facing, and your neighbors have difficulties that they're facing in their life, and we need the leadership And we need the guidance, the comfort, and the power of God in our lives. And we need it to be real for us in practical situations. And so, what do you need most right now in your life? If you have your Bible on, I invite you to open to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at probably the most preached passage in the book of Acts. But it's critical, it's important, and it's really a hinge point for us. It's something that shows us the character of the early Christians. It's a literary device that Luke uses, and it's simply called a summary statement. He uses about 12 summary statements through the book of Acts. And so the way that it works is there's a narrative, there's a historical narrative, there's action, there's characters, there's dialogue. And then Luke will sum it all up, sometimes in one verse, sometimes in a list of verses. And when he sums it up, he points out some key things. And I believe in this passage, there are some great reminders for us of what it will take to learn to improvise with the Holy Spirit when we need it the most. And so let's look down at the very end of chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's just a phenomenal statement right there. And it's followed up by more amazing stuff. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so I just want to 
look at four what I'm calling rhythms. They're just four rhythms, four things that the early church just seemed to do over and over and over again. And they enabled them to improvise with the Spirit of God when they needed it the most. And here's the first one, is that they learned to integrate the Scriptures and life. They learned how to integrate the scriptures in life. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if you look through the book of Acts, about 30 to 33% of it is teaching. It's sermons recorded, it's dialogue, and what they were teaching was about this life that they had found, this life that's lived in relationship, a surrendered relationship to Jesus, who, by the way, they believed had risen again. They believed that Easter was true, and they went out, and they were teaching people about this. And one of the things that we realize about Christianity from the very beginning is that it's not just about book knowledge. It's not just about how many verses you can memorize or can you answer the tough theological questions. And some of you will be challenged with that because you just want to have another Bible study. You know, you want to learn another answer. You want to have all your doctrine laid out in a row. And one of the things that's challenging for you is to go outside and live the Christian life out. And so you'll probably never hear preachers say this. You won't hear pastors say this, but I want you to put the Bible down. And I want you to go out and live out the Christian life. It's an integration of the scriptures and life. Now, others of you, you will be out there and you will be going for it. And you will be trying to bring justice to the world. You will be trying to do good in your neighborhoods. But you're doing it out of a vacuum a bit. You're doing it out without the power of the shaping of the scriptures in your life. And so I want to invite you to come back to the gift of the scriptures. God gives us the scriptures for the shaping of the Christian community so that we can go out and love our neighbors. And I want you to come back to the scriptures and fall in love with Jesus all over again. It's an integration of life and the scriptures. For me, I think... I think the person that has taught me the most about this in my life is my wife, Holly. She's not here, so I can embarrass her a little bit. We've been married for 19 and a half years, and I've gotten to know her a little bit, and I've watched her over the years integrate life and scripture. And when we first got married, you see, I was kind of a little bit tightly wound about this Bible stuff. I mean, I went to Bible college, and I went to seminary, and it was a big deal to me, and some of my mentors taught me, you get up at five in the morning, and you have an hour quiet time. That's just what you do, and you memorize scripture and you read it and you scripture pray and you keep a prayer journal and you keep another journal about what's going on in your life and quite frankly it's a little bit exhausting and I, I, I'm all down with discipline and we need that kind of discipline in our lives or some type of discipline in our lives but sometimes I would forget that I got to go out the doors and live that out. But Holly, she's wired more like an artist, and she went to Bible college too. She wrote the term papers, she studied the scriptures, and she has discipline in her life, but she figured out how to go out and just live that relationship out. And so I watched her. When we were young, and I was first in ministry, I was doing junior high ministry, and she always was able to go out and relate to the most difficult girls in the group. Those were the girls that were in her cabin at camp, and she did phenomenal with them. I've seen her become friends with with people that most Christians wouldn't even hang around with. You know, the Zacchaeuses in the world, the Marys and the Marthas or the Mary Magdalene's in the world. And she just has a way to be able to do that. And it's beautiful to watch her life as God paints that picture. And I've been challenged. And you know, that's one of the reasons why we do this together is so that we can stir one another up towards love and good deeds. 
And so for some of you, I want to encourage you to go out and live that out. For others of you, again, come back to the scriptures and fall in love with God again, and then go out and live that out. Now, some of you, you know, you're, you're practical, you're list makers, you like to check off the boxes, you're engineers, you know, you're very logical, and so I have a list for you today for some of you. And, and what it is, it's a list of the seven benefits of reading your Bible. There's more than seven, but here's seven, and they're all from Psalm 119. And so maybe you need a little list today just to encourage you, and so let me just read through these, some benefits of reading the scriptures The first one is that the Bible will keep you from sin. It'll keep you on track. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Bible will also lift your burdens. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Some of you need that this week. The Bible will guide your steps. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. The Bible will bring you joy. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. The Bible will lead you to wisdom. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The Bible will give you peace. Some of you need peace today. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. And lastly, the Bible will bring you back to God. Some of you are here this morning and you're on that journey back to God. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, Lord, for I have not forgotten your commands. The first rhythm of the early Christians was to integrate Scripture and life. Here's the second one. Number two is that they paid attention to relationships. It says that they devoted themselves to fellowship and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I was with a group of people on Friday night and we were laughing with glad and sincere hearts. There's just something about the power of community. And I don't want to talk too much about community because in two weeks, we're going to talk about engaging relationships. On Mother's Day weekend, we're going to celebrate relationships and I want to encourage you to be here. But I do want to say that we were made for relationships. One of the things about Orthodox Christianity is that we believe that we were created out of community, that God lives and exists from eternity past in community with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we were created for community. It says that it's not good for the man to be alone. And then God tells that first couple, go out and multiply and fill the earth. And I love my wife and I love my family and I love my kids. They drive me nuts sometimes, but I love them. But I don't think that that verse is about having more and more and more kids. I think it's about the fact that community is life-giving. You see, isolation is actually dehumanizing. It goes against our created image. We're created in the image of God and that image is an image of community. And so people will sometimes say, oh, I could be a Christian without the church. It's actually an oxymoron. You see, Jesus was in community. He was God in a body, had flesh and bones on, and he hung out with people with flesh and bones. Yes, he was in relationship with his father, but he also had community himself. And so he lays down that model for us as well. They paid attention to relationships. It's one of the big deals at Lakeside Church. That's why we want to help everybody we can to belong to community. It's a part of our playbook. It's a part of who we are. Here's the third one, and it's absolutely key. They remembered the cross and resurrection. They never forgot 
what Jesus taught them in the upper room. It says here that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. And it seems like what Luke is saying is that from the earliest time, from right at the birth of the church, they never stopped reflecting on the cross and resurrection, and they shared communion together, the Lord's Supper, something that we're going to do next week here at Lakeside Church. And when we do it, we're carrying on that story. We're remembering the cross and resurrection as Jesus gave the bread to his disciples and said, here, take, eat this. This is my body given for you. And then he took the cup. And he handed it to them and, say, and he said, drink this. And he called it the, the blood of the covenant, that God was going to remain faithful to that covenant that he made so long ago, and that Jesus was the climax of that covenant and the fulfillment of all of the hopes and dreams. And that that blood was spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. And so they remembered that. But when we take communion, we're also proclaiming that. We're proclaiming the death and resurrection. And so it's a lot like baptism where somebody goes into the water and they identify with Jesus and his death on the cross. And they say, I am dying to my old self and I'm going to rise again just like Jesus rose again. And I'm going to start this new chapter of my life. I hope you'll be at Beale's Point as we celebrate this new start to people's lives as they proclaim that uh, and they share with everybody around what God has done inside of them. When we take communion next week and you grab that bread and you grab that cup, you're proclaiming that, that you're following after him. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so one of the things that the early Christians did, one of the rhythms that they had was they never got away from the cross and the resurrection. It was absolutely central to their faith and to their way of life. Now, some of you will be sharing faith with people, and you'll be sharing about your journey with God. And oftentimes, you'll get into these side conversations and these, sometimes you'll get into some arguments and some debate. This is the way it works, right? And some of those conversations are key. They're important. They're great. But what I want to encourage you to do is always bring it back to Jesus. Always bring it back to the cross and resurrection. This is the central part of our faith. And they always seem to remember that and walk in that rhythm and were devoted to it in the early church. Here's the last one this morning. I mentioned this last week, but they devoted themselves to prayer. It just seems worth mentioning again. And you really can't do a serious reading through the book of Acts without noticing the rhythm of prayer in the lives of the early Christians. You see, when we go to the scriptures and we begin to dive into them, God makes himself available to us. And when we pray, in this mystery of how it works, and I don't really know how it works, but we make ourselves available to God. One of the things I love to do is uh, I've always had a hard time just sitting still and, and being quiet, you know, having my quiet time really, really still. Unless I have a good cup of coffee and then I'm good to go, you know, but what I'll do is I'll pray and I'll walk. And I'll just go walk through Folsom. Sometimes I'll walk five miles, six miles. I walked seven miles the other day and I'm just talking to God. And sometimes I'm just quiet, and, I'm, and, I, and I just tell God, I just want to listen to you. I want to make myself available to you. And again, it's a mystery to me, and I don't know how it works, and I've never heard God's audible voice, but I know that he speaks to me. And as I walk with him, I just try to give myself over to him, fresh and new, each time that I come to him in prayer. I want to encourage you to practice the rhythm of making yourself available to God. As we read through the rest of this narrative in Acts chapter 2, one of the things that we see is that some phenomenal things begin to take place. 
And we have this whole story of the early church, and there's amazing things happening. There's miracles happening, and we need to pray for miracles and hope for them. And I believe that miracles still take place, but I've often said, I wonder what's the biggest miracle, that, you know, lame people were being healed, blind people got their sight, or that the church was living in unity and nobody had need. I mean, you tell me, what's the biggest miracle? It's phenomenal. They started selling their possessions and sharing with one another. In chapter 4, it says that they actually sold their land. Now, for us, we just kind of skip over that and go, wow, that must have been a big sacrifice. But can you imagine anybody in the ancient Near East selling their land? Can you imagine anybody in the current Middle East selling their land and giving it to somebody else? It just didn't happen. The land was sacred. It was right up there with the law and the temple. The land was one of those things that God had given them, and it was a sign of his everlasting covenant with them of his covenant loyalty. And when they took care of the land, and when they gave the land its Sabbath rest, they were saying to God, we are in this with you, God. The land was sacred. And what they did is they started to sell it and distribute to anybody that had need. You see, Jesus had launched something new. And this new community of faith would be marked out by some new things. And one of the things that they would be marked out by was an exuberant generosity. I mean, not just any kind of generosity. I'm talking about a joyful, excited, willing generosity. It's not the kind of generosity that says, well, I'm just going to give you some leftovers, or here's my junk, or you know, here's my scraps. It was like, I'm going to sell what's sacred, what's important, and I'm going to treat something that's even more sacred and important, and that's humans. I'm going to treat you with dignity, and I'm going to take care of you. And it was so compelling in that day. It not only fostered unity in the church, but it actually gave the church an amazing reputation from without. Such a reputation that in those early days, thousands of people began to come and participate in that. And over the last 2,000 years, millions more continued to participate in this new community of faith, hope, and love. You see, devotion will ultimately lead to generosity. And I have to tell you, it is such a privilege to be a part of Lakeside Church because I have watched you, I have participated with you, I have seen the generosity over the last five years, and it's been amazing. And I I just want to encourage us to continue to do that even still more. Like the writer of Hebrews says, I want to stir you up even more to do that. I want to remind you to do that. And actually, this week, believe it or not, we have a very practical way for you to be generous. And here to share about that is the man with the beard, Stephen Wright. So why don't you bring him on up? Steve Wright, come on up. He's our director of Outreach Extension. You're moving a little slow there. Do we need to not talk about this? Are you a little embarrassed about what happened earlier? Well, my mom's in the audience. She might get a little nervous. Okay, so I won't tell anybody that you laid your scooter down and had a little accident. Okay, okay. that's okay. But your knee's okay. Yes, go ahead and have a seat. And uh, we're sitting in these nice comfy chairs and this sort of as an illustration of kind of a story that you told me uh, a couple weeks ago. And then I actually opened the paper and I actually read about it. And so tell us about what happened in our community recently. 
Well, just over two weeks ago, there was an apartment fire here in a part of our community that, uh, honestly, I think a lot of people try to forget that even exists. It's uh, a place um, where the people aren't really connected, and um, three three families were displaced because of it. Uh, they lost everything. A total of 18 people um, are now without housing um, and basically without anything. They lost clothing. They lost all of their furnishings. They lost everything. And, and they're not really connected to um, a community of faith. They don't have a faith family like we have here at Lakeside. And so there's really no one for them to turn to. Mm. Well, how can we get involved with this? How can we help? Well, each and every one of you were given one of these little pieces of paper when you came in, hopefully. Do we, do we have them? How about just to give me a, all right, you guys got them. All right, well, what we want to do is we want to we want to give ourselves to others. We want to help unleash you, the church, to love our neighborhoods. And so what we would like you to do is take this piece of paper and take a look at it. On the right-hand side here, um, there's, there's a list of items that, that they're looking for. Um, we're partnering with a group, uh, an organization called Furniture for Families, and this is what they do. They provide furnishings for people that have lost uh, items or that need to furnish their home, and they don't have to. They don't have the, the resources to do that. And so we're looking for, for these items so that we can help furnish the, these families' homes and give them a, a, a fresh start when they, uh, when they are able to move back into their homes. Right on. Well, how, how do we do this next week? I mean, we're partnering with some people. Sure. Uh, what do we want people to do? Well, uh, what, go through your homes and, and really check the stuff out. And first off, we're not looking for junk. This is not stuff that we're not looking for stuff that you're trying to get rid of and throw on your street corner. But we're really looking to be family to these people so that they know that they're loved and they're cared for. Just like Jesus loves and cares for each and every one of you, we want to love and care for each and every person in our community. And so um, maybe that means that, that you guys are looking at your house and say, I'm going to give this just to somebody else. Or maybe it means that you're going to go to the store and buy some furnishings for another family. But what we would like you to do is bring that here. We partnered with the Twin Lakes Food Bank um, to use their truck as transportation. And so we're going to park it right out here on the patio next weekend. And as you bring in your stuff, we're going to load up that truck. And then um, on Sunday afternoon, we'll drive it over to the warehouse for furniture for families. Right on. If, oh, sorry, I forgot. I totally forgot. There you go. If you don't have transportation, like if you don't have a big old loud truck like my son does that mm-hmm. uh, he transports everything for me, um, and you don't have that, um, there's a number on here that you can contact directly, Furniture for Families. And they, they have a truck, and they come through once a week um, and pick up the, the, the furnishings and the donations here in this area. I believe it's on Thursday. But contact them um, and just let them know that, hey, you want to make a donation of furniture to those people. But um, this is just a really good way for us. We didn't cause this to happen. We couldn't plan for this, but it's that improvisation. It's looking at what the, that wave of the Spirit and how do we jump on, how do we catch that wave and, and ride it out so that we can really be Jesus to everyone in our community. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate you sharing. All right, thanks, Sean. Hey, give Steve a hand, you guys. So at the very end of the passage in Acts chapter 2, it says two compelling things to me. One of the things that that it says is that these people, this early Christian community, enjoyed the favor of the culture around them. That's amazing to me. My hope is that this whole community around Lakeside, that we would enjoy the favor of this community, that we would be so helpful to our community that if we somehow disappeared off the face of the earth, people would say, where is that church? 
we're, I mean, I don't agree theologically with everything of that, that church, you know, maybe I'm not even into that Jesus thing, but where is that church? Because this community needs Lakeside Church. That is my hope. And the other thing that it says is that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. My passion is, and why I've stuck with ministry for the last 20 years, is I cannot get over when somebody meets Jesus. When somebody meets Jesus and they get that new life and that, that healing and that leadership and that peace that surpasses all understanding in their life, it's just amazing to watch. It's amazing to be a part of. It's why I'm going to be out at the lake next week to celebrate that because I can't get over that. My prayer is that the Lord would add to our number daily as well, that the mission of transformation would happen one life at a time over and over and over again, and that we're in this mission together as a community. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Father, thanks that you are a generous God. God, you emptied yourself and gave us yourself. You didn't send someone else because in matters of love, in matters of the heart, you go yourself, and that's what you did. So, Lord, you laid down the pattern. You laid down the rhythm for us, and I pray that we would practice these things, that we would learn the art of what it means to live out grace and truth in our world today and how to walk with you so that, God, when we need it the most, when you give us an opportunity when we're facing a challenge, we would be able to improvise with your spirit. That we wouldn't have to go back to some manual or some checklist, but we would just be able to walk with you in that moment. And God, that's a beautiful thing when that happens. And so, Lord, would you lead us? Lord, would you guide us? And Lord, would you use us as we reach out and love our neighborhoods? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.